Before we get going this morning, before we open God's Word, I wanted to spend just a few minutes letting you know a little bit about me and what I think about preaching and how this may go. Uh, before I do that, though, I want to acknowledge a few people uh, that have made this transition. There's a lot of people, all of you have made this transition for us into this role, uh, and we feel like we're already a part of your family. Um, but your interim lead pastor, John Fox, um, he has been a delight. He's been uh, a delight to work with, to help me get caught up to speed on what it looks like to be on staff. The staff has been amazing. Uh, John sent me like 300 Trello boards. I didn't even know what Trello was until I got here and I'm learning these things, but he's um, just, what a humble man uh, to, to let me walk into this and help me. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Also wanted to Really, for the last 10, 11 months, uh, people in this church have been uh, preaching, and preaching is a heavy burden if you've ever done it, and so there are a number of men who have spent uh, time who are bivocational, effectively, <laughs> that uh, Brent and, and Chris and other guys who have taken time every week or, or many weeks over the last 10 months uh, to prepare a sermon. That takes a lot of time and effort, and they have full-time jobs, they have families, and so I, I hope you encourage them and all the time that they've spent trying to feed you the Word of God over the last 10, 11 months in this transition. And so I, I pray that you would um, encourage them next time you see them uh, in that. I want to tell you a little bit about me and preaching. Um, I believe in expository preaching. I think the, the Bible calls us to preach the Word. I think there are different methods in which the Word can be taught effectively. Uh, the one I've learned and the one that I'm proficient at, I think, is expository teaching. I believe it best represents um, how the Bible ought to be taught. I think that's how you see most often uh, the people in the Bible speaking about the Bible. And so that takes different forms. Um, there's topical exposition. I like to walk, walk through books of the Bible usually. Um, I'm not doing that today, <laughs> not doing that for the next few weeks, but you will find uh, with me preaching that we're going to take usually a book of the Bible and walk through it. I want you to know what God says. I don't want you to, to think my thoughts. I want you to know what God says, and I want you to live according to the Word of God and an understanding of the gospel and who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And so that's normally the way that I'll be preaching uh, most Sundays, I'm kind of a 35 to 40 minute guy, and so I used to joke with our AV guy at our old church, if I break par in nine holes, then I'm doing pretty good. If, I, if you don't know that, I'm sorry. You're going to have to get used to some of this golf stuff. Um, so um, 35 to 40 minutes is, is what I shoot for. I don't, it depends on the text. Um, I like to take you know, a paragraph or two and work through it that way. So I don't, I don't plan to spend three years like in the book of Genesis or Romans, but I, I certainly like to walk through the book of the Bible so that you have an understanding of it. Um, on your worship guide, it may look a little different this morning. I like to give you an outline uh, a little bit. If you like filling in blanks, you're going to love this. Um, and so if I miss a blank, please tell me. Sorry about that. Uh, but I like to give you an outline. So if you look at your worship guide there, I'll try to, each week, uh, it's my goal, I'm working with the staff on this, I'd like to send follow-up questions to you about application of what you learned on Sunday. That may, if you're a community group leader, I don't know if you all talk about sermons or if you have books. I haven't got caught up to speed yet on community groups, but that may be a way in which you as a group can, if you're a group leader, you can maybe use those questions. You don't have to. Um, if you have better questions for your group, by all means, please do that. The last thing I'd want to tell you is that um, there have been a number of people that have stepped into this pulpit, and um, they've been faithful. I desire to be faithful. They have taught you the word. I desire to teach you the word, but I am not them. 
and they are not me. And so um, I um, am committed to using the gifts and abilities that God has given me to be your pastor, to shepherd you, to preach you. And so if you would afford me that grace, I'd appreciate it. I'm also a pretty open book. And so if you have a question about something I said or you don't understand something I said or you want to argue or talk about a point that you disagree with, I'm all ears. And so uh, please do that. Please uh, take the time, whether it's after a sermon or if you want to write me an email, some of you introverts, if you want to write me an email, I'm happy to do that. But I want to talk about the Word with you. I want to live life with you and uh, open the Word together. So that's my commitment to you. After all that, let me pray and uh, we will get into God's Word. Lord, thanks for this morning. Thanks for an opportunity. Just a deep privilege and honor of being the pastor here, and um, the honor of opening your word. Lord, I pray that I would do that faithfully. I pray that I would do that clearly, and I pray that I would point people to Jesus, for he is worthy. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a a recent comedian did a a skit called What's Wrong With People? And uh, he said 20 years ago when the doorbell rang, this is what it might look like. We would, the kids would run to the door with their socks on, and we said, we have company. Company's here. Let's pull out the coffee and the Sara Lee cake, and let's invite people into our house and our home and spend hours on t- at a time spending time with people. You open the door, or, or the door rings today, it's a different picture, isn't it? If the doorbell rings today in my home, I tell the kids to get down. I asked my wife, is somebody supposed to be over here? Because the doorbell rang, everyone hide, somebody get the gun, somebody get the sword, what's going on? And think about it, when you come to somebody's door today, you text them, you call them, you want to make sure that everybody's okay before you come over. Times have changed a little bit about coming over to somebody's house. Um, How do we do community has changed? We are more digitally connected and yet more lonely than ever. That's what stats say. If you don't believe me, today when you go to lunch at a restaurant or sometime this week, observe five people sitting at a table, everyone on their cell phone. We are more isolated and disconnected from people than ever. The last uh, U.S. Census said this, that 27.2 million people said, actually volunteered the information to say that they felt alone. 25% of people say, if I have something that's going awry in my life, I have no one to talk to. The number of socially isolated Americans has doubled since 1985. So my question for you this morning, one of them is this, when's the last time you had a conversation with someone who genuinely cared for you and meaningfully spoke into your life? What's God's design for the way that we relate to Him and one another? And maybe as a Christian, the question is this. If you know Jesus here this morning, do you think that you need Jesus and nothing else? That you can be a rogue, maverick Christian and live this life with only Jesus? Those are my questions for you this morning. The punchline this morning is this. It takes a village to raise and grow a Christian. Community is in fact God's context for us to connect, mature, and grow in Christ. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, you can't know God deeply, you can't grow significantly, or win people to Christ without community. That's a pretty profound, bold statement by Tim Keller. So as we look at biblical core values, maybe it was a little presumptuous of me, but a few weeks ago when I preached, I preached on Acts chapter 2. It was really the beginning of this three-week series. And so presumptuous, maybe, but what I said a few weeks ago was this, that God builds his church by his word. 
if you missed it. God builds His church by His Word. We receive the Word. We're devoted to the Word. We're satisfied in the Word. We, we're sustained by the Word. That's what you get from Acts 2 in the New Testament. We share the Word and we know the Word who is Jesus Himself. So that was part one of the series. Part two is community. So Word community. If the diet for a Christian is the Word of God, the exercise regiment, the squat or the push-up of the Christian life is community because it affects the whole body. That's what the New Testament teaches about the life of a Christian, I think. And this is what we're going to see today from Acts 2. But here's the thing. When you come to Acts 2, especially living in our 21st century context, it kind of slaps you on the face when you see it as it relates to doing life with one another. It's convicting. It's challenging. And so what I want to do, really your first couple of points here today, uh, are more taking you on a journey in Bible and theology to help you understand why when you come to Acts 2 that they shared life the way they did because it's radical. It, 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 you look at it and you go, that's not exactly what it looks like for me. But I want to tell you the why behind it. And so we're going to go on a little journey. So turn with in, in your Bibles or look up here in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, uh, the Word of God says this. You got it back there? See if my eyes are good enough. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here's what's going on. I think what's going on is that you have a conversation within the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which we see in the Bible, are all active in creation. What you see is them having a conversation. How are we going to make these humans? Here's the thing. When you come to Genesis, God creates the world by the word of His power. And He, and he says that at the end of every day that everything is good. But then He says it's very good about man. Man is the highest aim of God in creation. He built the world for man. You could even argue that he built the universe for man, that he could have relationship with him, that he could have communion with him, that he could walk in the cool of the day with man. And so he's having, God is having a conversation with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Think about this. Take another drink of coffee and think about this. God has existed eternally, eternally forever in communion with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the message is this. The message is that God has not been alone. He has not been isolated. He's been in communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for eternity. And he said, let us make man in our image. And our image means we are connected and we are, we are hardwired for connection. That's your first point this morning. You are hardwired for connection. And you come to chapter 2 and you see a man naming the animals. And he names them, and he names them, and he names them. Then he comes, and God notices something. In a perfect environment for man to be with God, he notices something is not quite right yet. That man is alone. That man doesn't have a helper suitable. And so he creates woe man, right? He creates woman for man. Do you see it? See, God has hardwired us for connection. First connection with Him, and then connection with one another. You see it early on in, in the book of Genesis. But we know what the fall did, right? What did the fall do? It creates this tension. 
See, Adam and Eve wanted autonomy from God. They wanted to be like God, and they took. And what the consequences of sin is not only separation and disconnection from God, but disconnection. I knew I was going to do that eventually. I promise you I'm going to fall off the stage at some point. Sorry, Gatlin. I hope I didn't break something. I like to move a little bit. I forgot that point. Um, sorry about that. I'll pick it up at the end. I'm not going to stop. We're hardwired for connection. But the tension is, because of the fall, because we've been disconnected from God, and also in Genesis 3 you see all these different ways, seven or eight different ways in, w- in which the fall and the curse affects us. One of those is relationships with one another, and you see it immediately in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 and all the way through the Bible. You see it in your own life, the disconnect with people. Here's the tension. We want autonomy. We want autonomy from others, and yet we know we need connection. Do you feel that in your life? When you're frustrated, you, you want to be alone, or maybe you just need time alone, and that's good and right, especially for introverts that need a, a break from people. That's okay, but we want autonomy, and yet we need connection, and that's the tension that you see. I, I think of, uh, just for the kids, but you think of the Christmas carol, and you think of Ebenezer Scrooge, remember the old guy, kids? And that was his tension, is that he wanted money, he wanted isolation, he enjoyed that, he took from people. But in the end, what, what was his plight? What, what was his problem? He did that, and yet he was completely disconnected from every human being. And that's the challenge here. We want autonomy. So kids, I know you tell your parents, and, and maybe you, whether you do... Uh, homeschool or whether you're, you've already started school, you tell everybody that you, you know, at the end of summer that you don't want to go back to school, and I know you're telling the truth, but one of the neat things about school is what? You get to see people that you haven't seen. You get to reconnect. You get to reconnect with other kids you have, maybe you haven't seen all summer. And what are the things that you're worried about or anxious about? Will people like me? Will I have friends? Will I be accepted? That is hardwired into you because God has built you for connection. And adults, when you think about the busyness of life and the last time you really connected with your wife or or a friend and the isolation that you feel, you feel that because you're disconnected. You feel that because God has hardwired you for connection, at least some degree of connection with other people. But beyond our desire to be connected with people, What happens in Genesis 1 is that God wants to be connected with us and us with him. That's what you see in Genesis 1 and 2. You see God walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve and he built this whole thing for connection with you and relationship with you. And that's what sin has done. It's it's destroyed that connection. Now you have separation with God. And so what I want to tell you this morning is that yes, you're hardwired for connection, but that's been broken. But the beauty of the gospel is this. The beauty of the gospel is that you can have fellowship with God, relationship with God, because of what Christ has done. That he died in your place. He gave himself for you that you might have life and you might have relationship with God again. That's the beauty of the gospel and I can make you a promise. I promise you will not relate to people the way God originally wanted you to relate to people without knowing Christ. Because when you know Christ and have been forgiven by Christ, all those collisions that happen in your life, you can look at those and say, Christ forgave me. He forgave me. I can forgive others. 
I'll tell you a short story about that. I came to faith in college. I was 20 years old. And my parents divorced when I was 13. And it rocked our world. We were a part of a church. It all happened in the context of a church. It was messy. It was ugly. And for seven years, for one of my parents, I was bitter and I was angry at that person. And I came to Christ in college. And I realized that I needed Christ to forgive me of my sin and my problems. And I came to Christ. And one of the first weeks that I came to Christ... And thinking about the gospel and how great the gospel was that Christ would cover my sins and take my sins away by faith in him. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. That you know what? Christ has forgiven me. Now I am freed to forgive others. And I remember calling my parent on the phone and saying, Mom, I forgive you. I'm sorry that I've been bitter and I confessed to her my sin." And we cried, and I went home that weekend, and we spent time together. That doesn't happen apart from Christ. That kind of radical forgiveness doesn't happen apart from Christ. So we're hardwired for connection. Yes, that's true. But there's something else. God is after something with his people. He's after something even more than salvation. He's creating a people for his own possession. Have you ever heard that language in Scripture? He's creating a people for his own possession. Your second point is this, is that God's people are redeemed into a family. See, God makes us a people. He wants to do something with us. Exodus chapter 6. You know the book of Exodus. You see Israel. They're in Egypt. And they are pleading for God to deliver them, to redeem them, to take them out of slavery. And what does God say? I'm going to put that up on the board there. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. This is God speaking. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so God delivers and redeems his people and makes them a people. You see that starting in Genesis chapter 12 with Abram. And then look at the New Testament, Titus chapter 2. It says it this way. This is God's redemptive plan to make a people. Talking about Jesus, he gave himself for us to redeem us, meaning to bring us out of slavery from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That's what God desires in the church. You are a people, we are a people for God's own possession who are zealous for good works. You got one more in the book of Revelation, in the new heavens and the new earth, even in the end. Look at what it says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Sound like the garden? Is with man. He will dwell with them like the garden. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear. Think about this if you're in a bad place from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Listen, God is creating a people. The church is a, is a people for his possession. Think about the metaphors in the New Testament that God uses. The authors of scripture use for the church. We're a household. We're a family. We're the body of Christ. Jesus is the head and we are the parts that doesn't sound like something we just show up for on Sunday morning. Church is not just an activity. 
that we do on Sunday morning. No, we have a new identity. If you know Christ, you have a new identity. It's not just the biological identity like your family. It's a spiritual, eternal identity that we are the people of God. Together, this is our identity. So we are redeemed into a new family. Can I tell you what church isn't? Church isn't a country club. Church isn't a country club or a social club where you pay dues and then you get and receive Church is not just a support group, even though we are here to care for one another and bear each other's burdens, but it's a two-way street, right? We care as broken people. We care for one another. And it's not just a parachurch ministry. I came to faith in college through a parachurch ministry, a nonprofit ministry. It was geared toward a specific group of people that had specific likes, that had specific hearts for ministry, and all of those are good. We support all kinds of nonprofit ministries here, but the church is not that. The church is a diverse group of people, very different. Look around. A diverse group of people that have completely different personalities, that like different things, and we come together in unity because of the gospel. And just think about the Godhead again for a minute. Father, Son, and Spirit, different, distinct, and yet unified. Diversity, unity. Sometimes I wish it wasn't that way. You? Think about your community group. Think about the people in this church and go, that person really bugs the heck out of me. Like, we have very little in common. We don't agree on politics. We don't agree on parenting. We have different takes all over. You see it on social media. And yet, God has made us a people. He has made us a local church here in Magnolia. A people for his own possession. We have this family identity together. And so let me ask you do, you, do you see church as a family? Does it change the way you think about that person that gets on your nerves here? And, and maybe, better yet, do you tend to look at church as something that's just a part of your schedule? That's a challenge for me. One of the books that I read, um, a really neat author named Tim Chester wrote a book called Total Church. I think some of you have, have gone through that book here. I would encourage you to read that. It's a great read on how the, the church is a family and you have an identity together with one another. That's beyond something you do together on Sunday morning. Well, we're hardwired for connection. Believers and the people of God are clearly redeemed into a new family. Let's look at Acts 2, which is where I've been trying to get. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. Let me read that. And they devoted themselves. Think about the context of what I've just told you. And think about the new identity and think about the relationship with one another as we read this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. It's a word we get for community, koinonia. We'll talk about it to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any who had need. And day by day, attending in the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And they received their food, look at this, with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's a lot there. There's word, there's community, there's a commitment to prayer, there's breaking of bread both in homes 
and in communion, I think. There's sharing of faith. There's worship. There's all kinds of elements in there. But here's my point for you as it relates to community. Real community will both cost you and bring you joy or gladness. Real community will cost you and bring you joy and gladness. The idea there in verse 42 of koinonia, the idea where it says fellowship, that's the Greek word koinonia, and it has this idea, especially here, of giving away, sharing, a commonality with other people, participating with one another. Does that sound like a word? Does that sound like a word that is a receiving word or a giving word? Fellowship by nature, by nature, is a self-giving away, a giving away to others. So when you think about fellowship and you think about punch and cookies and you think about your community group, what you ought to be thinking about fellowship is, how can I, what's the value add that I can give to somebody else in my church? That's the idea of fellowship. You see this through the New Testament. You see the fellowship of the Spirit. You see the, spe- the fellowship of sharing life. You see the fellowship that we have with one another because of Jesus, the fellowship with the Son. You see the fellowship of people in the New Testament that have to suffer together and are persecuted together and going through trials together. That's the New Testament idea of community and koinonia. There's three observations about this text and about koinonia or fellowship that I want to point out, community that I want to point out. What were they sharing? Look at what they were sharing. Look at verse 44 and verse 45. They were sharing, verse 44 there, if you're, if you're there. And, and they were selling, excuse me. As you get older, you can't see these little words as good. Like I need some reading glasses, I think. Verse 44, and all who, who believed were together and had all things in common. The word common there is the same word in verse 42 for fellowship. We had common together, and they were selling their possessions and belongings. That's not communism, because they have homes. They're freely, generously giving to others. What that is, is a generous heart toward others to care more about people than they do their own stuff. If that blows you away uh, as a conservative, go to chapter 4. In chapter 4, they're doing even more of this stuff, but it's not communism. Don't Read into this text some form of government. It has nothing to do with government. It has everything to do with the way you and I and the body of Christ relate to one another. And so they were selling possessions to care for people out of the generosity of their own heart. So you see possessions being shared. That's a cost. If I give to someone else, that's a cost to me. 44 there, possessions and belongings and distributing, distributing the proceeds to all. Any who had need, it also speaks to a sensitivity. It also speaks to knowing needs. How well do we know the needs of those in our body? This is what's called shepherding care in the church. How well do we know the needs of my brother and sister who, who just had a kid and might use a meal? Who's going through a hard time or someone who is sick or ill? How can we care for them? It, it requires us knowing those things. And the other thing that you see here is that they also were spending a lot of time together. That, that sticks out to me in verse 46. And day by day, attending in the temple. And you might read that today and go, did these people have jobs? Like, did they work? Did they do anything? I think they did. I think they had families, probably big families, and they had jobs, but they were committed to one another day by day. Attending the temple, that's kind of corporate together, worship together. 
and in, in homes. And so they opened their homes. So you see here possessions are being shared. That's a cost. You see time. Time is money, right? Time is a cost to you. And you see space. They were opening their homes to one another. And they were breaking bread, having meals together. This is the picture of the early church. This is what community looked like in the early church. And I'm not sitting here saying that our lives have to look exactly like the first century, but there are some principles here as you think about your church family that are important. The principle of doing life together, that we're grounded in the word and we are committed to one another, that we love one another. I don't know what that looks like for you exactly. I think as a church, there are different venues that we have for you to engage with one another. We'd encourage you to be a part of that. But the goal here is relationship and community. And so that's what you see in this text. There's cost. It's messy. It, it, it will kill your perfectly laid out schedule this week to have community, to care for somebody. I can promise you that. It's self-giving. It's, it's sacrificing. But there's a payoff. Do you see the payoff? They were taking food with what? Glad and generous hearts and worship. See, I think inviting you into community it shouldn't be a guilt trip it should be an invitation toward gladness and an invitation toward worship and that's the way it's presented in this text I, I was a community groups pastor for a long time and one of the things that you I could observe over a long period of time is when I had somebody either somebody new or somebody in the church who would come to me about community groups or about how do I get connected to relationships if Typically speaking, not always, but, but many times, if, if there was, if the conversation went something like this, hey, I'd really like, and then they would just give a laundry list of things that were kind of requirements for them to be um, in relationship with other people in the church, whether it was a community group or a ministry, and it was kind of me-focused, um, there was a pretty good chance that I was probably going to talk to that same person or that same couple three to six months later, and they were probably going to tell me it's not working out. And contrast that with a person who would come, maybe a new person or a person in the church, man, I can't wait to get involved here. I can't wait to get involved in people's lives. Where can I get plugged in? Where can I meet people? Where can I serve? You know, in three to six months, most of the time, I could look at those people and there was gladness, and there was joy, and serving, and having real fellowship and koinonia with one another. So that over-under bet was really easy. And so I want you to think about that as it, as it relates to the, the way that you think about community, and the way that you think about your church, and the way that you think about getting involved in the life of a church. So the questions are, are simply these, are you living in community? Are you sharing your time and space and even possessions? Man, I've got a couch in my house that has a big red stain on it. Because some little kid took his drink upstairs like he wasn't supposed to. Not in my family. Mine do it too. At community group. And so I got a big red stain to remind, uh, as a reminder of this kid's love for my house. Right? It's messy. Right? I've gotten arguments about silly things with people that I do life with. 
You know, when people don't show up at your house and they said they would and you provide food, you have that conversation. Like, it's a messy thing, right? It's a messy thing to get involved in each other's lives, but it's also an invitation. It's an invitation to have a church with glad hearts that worship Christ out of the outflow. There's this guy named Jesus who said something like this, right? He said it when he was about to die and be resurrected. What did he say to his disciples? He said, take up your cross and follow me. If you want to gain life, you've got to lose it. And I think he was speaking literally, but he was also speaking about the day-to-day taking up our cross and following Jesus, that sacrifice actually brings blessing and joy and worship. And I know when I look at this room, I look at people in all kinds of phases of life. You're saying, man, it kind of feels like a guilt trip. I don't mean to guilt trip you at all. There's so much grace And the idea of of fellowship, maybe you're in a season where you physically can't get off work in time to get to community group or get to something. Or maybe you're in a season where you have little kids and anything over an hour and you're out. Like when you have little, little ones, you can take them where you want to take them. But when you have three-year-olds running around, community group might look a little different. It might look like, hey, we'll be there from this time to this time and then they got to get to bed. And that's okay. I remember going from having no kids two kids. And I remember going, man, we used to spend 10, 12 hours just hanging out like with, with our friends during the week. And we can't do that anymore. That's a different phase of life. And you ought to give yourself a little bit of grace. We want you committed to the life of this church and community. But don't take that guilt with you and say, well, we can't spend 12 hours, so we're going to spend none. Right? It just looks different. I'm, I've met with couples over and over who start having children, and they think, this church, I don't have community here, and what it really is is that your life has changed a bit. And so whatever season you're in, if you're an empty nester, we expect a lot from you. Sorry. Are you single? We expect a lot from you. Right? But seriously, there are different seasons of life where community looks very different. We're trying to figure it out right now. We've got middle school, late elementary school. What does that look like with football and activities, the crazy like activities that just dominate your life. There's grace in that, but in a local church, there ought to be a place where we say, we know them. We're connected to this church and the life of the church, and we do that because it's an identity. This is who we are. We're a part of this family, and we get gladness and joy out of it. Somebody said it this way. There are two types of communities, or there are two types maybe of churches. There's probably more than that. Um, you, you think about marbles, take a bag of marbles. If you took a bag of marbles and you shook the bag of marbles, those marbles aren't going to affect one another because they're hard, right? They might scuff each other a little bit, but they're hard. And there are sometimes in our own hearts or in churches, like maybe people or a church that is kind of like a bag of marbles, where we bang against each other, but nothing really good happens because we're hardened or we're jaded or we're taking, we've taken the hurts that we've had in church or whatever they are. I've got them, you've got them, and it's, and it's caused us to be jaded. And I just want you to know as a church that's gone through a transition, and a church that's gone through a lot of hurt and a lot of pain, if you move into an approach in church life that is jaded, That's what the result is. You're like a bag of marbles who bang against one another. I've been there. 
I've been in really hard places in ministry where it hurt, where it hurt a lot. But I think God is calling us to be more like a bag of grapes, a bag of grapes that are shaken. When you bang grapes together, they bruise and they hurt, but they meld together. And if you're a wine connoisseur, there's good things that happen, right? Have you been through the wine press? See, my experience is this. When I get jaded because of hurts, I become like that marble. But when I cast my cares on Jesus, and I remember that the church is a place of broken people that are going to hurt me, that are going to bruise me, but we meld together and we figure it out. It's a beautiful thing. So consider that as you think of community. What does it look like for me to be like a grape? Yes, I'm bruised and I'm broken, but I'm together. That's what I see in this church, and I've only been here a few weeks, but I see people who've walked through a season that's hard. And my prayer as we move forward together, that that's the kind of people we would be together, that we would be vulnerable, that we wouldn't get jaded and, and hold back, but we would be vulnerable with one another, that we would share with one another, we would care for one another. That's the church that I think you see in the New Testament, and that's the church that Jesus desires us to be. Let me close with this. There's a story about two guys that are very different. Two very different guys. Let me read it to you. Damon was short, exceedingly non-athletic, and a genius. Gene was tall, tremendously athletic, and couldn't care less about academics. Damon liked everyone, had no enemies, and loved to be with people. Gene didn't care for anyone, had no excuse me, had lots of enemies and never worried about anyone thought of him. Damon was an electrical engineer who loved to cook. To the point that, in his spare time, he earned a degree in culinary arts. Gene was a bouncer in a local club and loved to hit people in the face. Thirteen counts of aggravated assault. And eventually, in his spare time, learned mixed martial arts. Damon sought career-based success because he wanted to fulfill a desire to, of acceptance and approval. Gene rebelled against the societal norms and hopes to find some type of power and control that always seemed to escape him. And yet, though Gene and Damon were different, in every way they shared two things in common. Their search for worth and then their need for a savior. And then they both came to faith in Christ and they were put in the same community group. And so you have two very different people they would have nothing in common together in the gospel. Can I tell you that the gospel brings you more common ground than any difference that you have with one another? Do you believe that? Absolutely true. And then it says this. D.A. Carson, Carson says this. The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, not common race, not common income levels, common politics, common nationalities, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus and owe Him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That's us. We're the church. It takes a village to raise and grow a Christian. Community is the context. It's God's design for us to change and grow together. 
Next week, we look at what does it look like for us as a church, as a community, to be sent out on mission for the gospel. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the way in which you have called us, if we know you, to yourself. And that gives us forgiveness of sin. It gives us eternal life, but it gives us a new identity and a new family to care for us, for us to care for them. So we thank you for the church. We pray for C3 Magnolia. We pray that this would be a church that loves each other well, that prays for each other deeply, that cares for one another and our needs. In Jesus' name, amen.